We actually had like excess money just from like we've all raised our budgets. Um, Justin did an amazing job keeping the budget and like Yeah. 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 Yeah.
so much for everything you've given us, God. Our time, our, our breath, and everything that, that we have, God. I just pray that you bless Nate's message, God, that you would speak through him, and that your word, word would be proclaimed here, God, in front of all of us, and that it would it would separate bone from marrow. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Yeah. yeah. If you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 6. If you have your phone, scroll with me. But the, the background of tonight's message, we're looking here at John 6, and, and the setting, it kind of sets the stage for us tonight. Jesus is a household name in Galilee. He is, he is being talked about by everybody. There's this buzz going on. I heard he walked on water. I knew somebody who was demon possessed. I had somebody that he healed. Like there's this conversation. Who is this guy? You know, some people are thinking like he must be a, a great prophet, maybe even the Messiah. There's kind of this, this conversation. And then this crowd is coming around. There's people coming around and he's teaching these followers of his. And he says, if you want essentially to be saved, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. <laughs> Let's do it. To which, to which those of us who have grown up in the church world are like, it's such a beautiful depiction of his redemption and his restoration and his atonement on the cross, which is true and accurate. But at the moment, it was like, ew. What is going on? To which, in verse 66, it says, from that time on, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you want to leave too? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We're starting a new series tonight. We're going to be talking about the disciples. Particularly, we're looking at these young men who... For some reason or another, even when everyone else was leaving, decided to stay. Even when they didn't understand, even when it didn't always make sense, even when they didn't have all the answers, there was this desire in their heart to say, I want to follow after Jesus. And so we want to look at this series on like, what was it about these men these young men, I mean, some of them are pretty young. Don't think like old men with beards, think young men with acne, right? They're like, Peter is probably the oldest, we think. He was actually married. But he, was by, he was probably by far the oldest. The other ones are, you know, maybe 13, 14, 15, maybe. So these young men, what caused them to be willing to give up everything, sacrifice everything, follow this rabbi from Galilee, from Nazareth, when everyone else is walking away? And you might say, well, it's because they were they were being transformed by Jesus' ministry. And that's true, but so was everyone else. He was doing the same message to everybody. What was it about some of these guys that made them receptive to be transformed by Jesus? And Tozer, in the book called The Pursuit of God, he makes this comment. He says, pick at random a score of great saints whose lives and testimonies are widely known. Let them be Bible characters or well-known Christians or post-biblical times. You will be struck instantly with the fact that the saints were not alike. Sometimes the unlikeness were so great as to be positively glaring. 
How different, for example, was Moses from Isaiah? How different was Elijah from David? How unlike any others were John and Paul, St. Francis and Luther, Finney and Thomas Akempis? The differences are as wide as human life itself. Differences of race, nationality, education, temperament, habit, and personal qualities. Yet they all walked, each of his day, upon a high road of spiritual living, far above the common way. Their differences must have been incidental and in the eyes of God of no significance. In some vital quality, they must have been alike. What was it? He goes on, he says, I venture to suggest that the one vital quality which they had in common was spiritual receptivity. Something in them was open to heaven, something which urged them Godward without attempting anything like a profound analysis I shall say simply that they had spiritual awareness and that they were on to cultivate it. They went on to cultivate it until it became the biggest thing in their lives. They differed from the average person in that when they felt the inward longing, they did something about it. They acquired the lifelong habit of spiritual response. When we want to look at that, these, these young men who had this spiritual response and, and see what we can learn from it. Because you know, the Bible says God desires that no one should perish. That God desires that all of us have this deep, profound, significant life in faith. And I, for one, need that. I need to live in the peace of God. I need his joy in my life. I need that transformation. I don't want to just be you know, a moral person. I don't want just to do the good Christian thing and have a Sunday service and you know, give some tithes to the church and do all those things. Those things are good and important, but I want a life that's transformative. These young men, their lives were completely changed. And as a result of their lives being changed, they would change the world. When Jesus dies, this is who they who he had left. This was the remnant. And yet, through their transformation, they transformed the world. But it started with this spiritual receptivity. So I want to look at that tonight and for the next few weeks. What does, what does it look like to be a person whose life is receptive to the transformation of God in it? We're going to start tonight by looking at Simon the Zealot. Kind of an interesting uh, disciple to start with because if you did a Bible study on Simon, it would be a very short Bible study. Um if you read John 6, Acts 1, uh, where the disciples are named, uh, he's in there. And that's about it. Kind of a great place to really go into a deep talk. So you guys are like, well, it's going to be a short sermon tonight. Let's, let's, what's next? Um, it's a problem with preachers. We're all long-winded. No. Um, but there is one thing that we can glean from Simon. His title Zealot. Now that's where we get that was the original word there is where we also get the word zealous to be passionately, fervently committed to a cause wholly and entirely. Um, and Simon, you know, we use it as a description, but historians have actually begun to find that this this is actually you, you know you didn't Peter was zealous. If you want to like you know find somebody that was a disciple that was like passionately you know zealous. It would, why was this guy titled that? And historians think actually he was part of a movement that was just beginning about that time in Israel. They were called the Zealots, and they were essentially extreme nationalists. 
think like world war ii, occupied france and and the people within france that were trying to fight against nazi germany you know that was how they would have seen themselves they are the people who are who are oppressed by rome they think that they have a right to fight against the oppressor and and they are doing something about it they're doing anything they can to try to to you know, stop the flood of the political, social, cultural power of Rome in their society, and, and they're fighting hard with that cause. And Simon must have been one of these uh, people. What's interesting is we find in church history that Simon would later actually die a martyr's death, um, fighting for the very people that he promised he was going to fight against. The very oath that he would have made as a zealot to say, I'm going to fight against Rome at any moment, time, opportunity, or cause I can find, I will fight against these people. He eventually would die fighting for them, for the cause of Christ, so that they might know the hope and the joy and the peace that he had found. So what does that look like? Tonight I want to spend a little bit of time looking at kind of three things. One, what is passion? This passionate man who has spent his whole life fervently, passionately, wholly committed to, to causes, and particularly when it became the cause of Christ, what, what do we find passion means? Uh, how do we develop passion in our life? And then thirdly, how do we live it out as a lifestyle? What is it? How do we grow it? What does it take to live it out? So what is passion? Um, I think passion we can easily describe in with using two attributes of of that word, and two attributes of passion are passion is something that you believe is true and that matters to you. It's something that you believe is true and that matters to you. You know, in, in ministry, uh, I have a lot of young people come in and throughout the years, and it's it's common for me to find some young people who know it's true, who believe that Jesus is Son of God, God incarnate, coming close to man so that we could draw close to him to have this relationship restored with our creator so that we could have an eternity with him. They believe it, they know it, they could you know, write it on a test, but they don't care. Yeah. You know, Winky Prattney uh, would say they are the inoculated church, that there is, you know, in a positive way, uh, the church is like a virus trying to infect the world in a positive way. That's kind of, you know, normally it's a negative, but in a positive way. Um, and, and the way that you overcome a virus is by getting just enough of it that you create an immunity to it. And what he's saying is there is so many people that have grown up in the church. They know all the answers. They've heard it all before. You can't impress them. You can't convince them. You can't make, cause a reaction out of them. And they don't care. They know it's true, but it doesn't matter to their life. On the other hand, you have some people who know it matters, but don't know whether it's true. If Jesus is the Son of God, that changes everything. But I don't know if it's true. Right? In fact, some of the people who fight most fiercely against Christianity probably are closer to the kingdom than the inoculated church because they are actually they actually come from the stance to say if this is true everything is going to change in my life so I don't and sometimes they're saying so I don't want it to be true because they want to live their their own way yeah. but 
So they're fighting against it. They're kind of like the Pharisees. It's kind of dangerous, but they're like the Pharisees. They're like, I know this is going to make a huge difference if Jesus is the Messiah, so I'm really fighting to convince myself and everybody around me that he's not. Right? It's not a motivation out of, out of logic. It's a motivation out of, of saying, I have an agenda. I don't want this to be true. But, but we need both. Passion comes when both are true. And so the question then obviously becomes, well, why is Christianity true, and why does it matter? Why is Christianity true? And that's, a, that's an answer, that's a question that I am not ever going to even hope to answer in you know, three minutes. Not because there isn't enough to talk about, but because there's so much to talk about. Uh, and I hope that your small group community and your, your small group leader and, and this community at large is continuing to walk with you as you're continuing to grow. Even if you've answered that question for yourself, but growing in that concept of why is this true and why does this matter? As a college student at CSU in 2019 in the spring here, as I'm learning to figure out relationships and future and career and life, how, why does this matter? And so walking that out. But I do want to say maybe a, take a stab at it you know, like a, like a two-minute stab at this concept, and I simply will say this. One, why is, it, why is Christianity true? Look at the testimonies around you. Look at the testimonies around you. Look at people whose lives have been radically changed from depression, from anxiety, from fear, from a life, and they have emotionally have completely done a 180. Look at the people around you. There are people in this room who have had deep uh, physical experiences of, of healing. Like the physical has been changed, or the spiritual, like their whole mindset, their whole lifestyle, they're almost like they're a new creation. Yeah. If you can say why that happens, why those things are changing, what are the testimonies around your life? Because I think in that we can say there is something going on. And maybe it's a God who is pursuing after us. The other thing that I would say is, is look at the apologetics. Yeah. People are like, why do we apologize as Christians? No, it has, it has to do with Latin or something. I don't know. It, it's saying the defense of our faith. And I, you know, you can go way too... I love apologetics. I enjoy it. But you can go way too far in this, in this point by itself, trying to, because there's always going to be another argument. There's always going to be another thing. You're not always going to know the answers. The disciples didn't know what in the world Jesus was talking about with drinking his blood. But that's not to say, that's not to say there aren't. So look, if you're really genuinely being like, I just don't know, it's God will look. Let me tell you, Christianity is not a faith that is scared of the questions. Go to, go YouTube John Lennox going against you know Richard Dawkins and see if there is, you know you can't find a good reason. You know, listen to Timothy Keller or or uh, Ravi Zacharias at universities around the country and say, do you think that you can have an intellectual belief in God? I tell you, the, the defense is there. The third thing is, can you, and this isn't even an answer, but it's more of a question back to that question, and simply this, do you believe that you could live a life in line with the belief God isn't real? Do you believe that you can live a life in line with the belief that God isn't real? So what do I mean by that? Why does Christianity matter? William Lane Craig has a book called uh, On Guard, and, and in it he kind of he writes about some concepts that are pretty common uh, discussion points within philosophy, uh, but he just kind of hones in on it, and he basically brings this out. If God isn't real, then there is no significance to life, 
There is no value to human existence. There is no meaning to our existence in this life. You lose significance, meaning, and value. If there is no God, the cosmos are an accident, therefore the universe is going to die a slow, cold death, entropy is going to win, we are going to cease to exist, and none of it will have mattered at the end of the day. There is no such thing as should in in a world where God doesn't exist. Now, I... People say like should. Well, you know, I, I can say you know my should my phone should hit the floor if I drop it, but I'm not because I don't want to crack the screen, right? There there is causality. There is should as causality, but what I mean is should is intentionality. In intentionality, there is no should in a world without God, because it is an accident. You are simply you know you are a bunch of DNA strands that came together that that randomly accidentally found that they had a longer shelf life of causality. You know, they just kind of worked to like propagate itself, but there was no purpose, meaning, or value to any of that point. Richard Dawkins even, you know, highlights it when he says, um, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are uh, machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for being. So, what he's kind of getting at is that without God, there is no meaning, there's no value, there's no purpose. And so you can't say, what you lose is purpose. You can't find purpose from purposelessness. You lose value of human existence. You cannot say, you know, Hitler was an evil man um, or his, what he did was wrong in the world and say there is no God because there is no basis for moral uh, statements in the world. You can subjectively say those things, but to subjectively say that is, by definition, to say it does not have a basis. It is simply my choice to desire to live that way. And the thing is, you are not by itself. Now, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Some people in here probably are really generally wrestling with faith, and I, and I get that. I'm not trying to minimize that. And some people are like, man, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty moral. I think I'm more moral than some of the Christians I know around me. I'm not arguing that. I'm not arguing against that. I'm saying I have a basis by which I choose that you have value. I'm not saying you can't believe that you have value without God. I'm saying I have a basis for that belief. Wow. What is yours? Wow. Yeah. I have a basis for the belief that social justice matters. I have a basis for belief that my character matters because it's going to carry with me into eternity. I don't have time to get into all that. It matters because how I treat the earth even. You know, not to get into all these you know like things, but like you know this eternity is going to be heaven on earth, that the spiritual is going to merge with the physical, that this, that the two uh, dimensions, if you will, are going to become one. This incredible narrative of the, of the kingdom story of God in the Bible. Yeah. I have a basis for believing that. You can believe that without believing in God, but what's your basis? You're, as one writer says, you're basically floating. You say, why? Because I think you should love people. Why? Because I think that's human decency. Why? Because people have value. Why? Eventually, you're going to get to, I don't know. There isn't. Because it's subjective. But I believe that you do have value, and it's not a subjective idea. That you are objectively a child of God, made in his image, with a purpose and a meant intentionality with that. All right. So, all right, I believe that I should. I believe I know I should have passion for God, but I just don't. How do I, how do I develop that? How do I grow that? Um, Kind of, kind of interesting. Angela Duckworth is a 
has popularized some concepts. I, I read her book uh, on grit a few years ago. It's, it's really good, kind of uh, a big book in education these days. But she highlights kind of three phases of passion developments in our lives in general. One is this. One is play. Uh, we start with play, then we go into uh, deliberate practice, and then third, we end with altruistic purpose. So we kind of play, then we practice it, and then we find purpose in it. And I thought it was kind of a good basis for this conversation. One, in play, how are you playing with God? Well, what do I mean by that? Well, it's a long ways I could go. But one thing, I have two little boys, and it's amazing to look at the world through their eyes. Because they are always full of wonder. Everything is wondrous, right? When you when you don't have any experience. There's no difference between a two-year-old today and a two-year-old from 2,000 years ago, right? I mean, they, they, there's no basis of difference aside from, you know, once we get older, we, you know, get used to technology and different things like that, but we, everything is wondrous. You know, you turn on the faucet, water's coming out. Whoa, where does that come from? Where's it going? I, I don't know. I never really asked that question, right? You know, just... <laughs> One of my cousins once, you know, when she was little, uh, Anyway, she, somebody made the comment that, cow, that milk comes from cows, and she's like, no, it doesn't. It comes from Safeway. You know, like, <laughs> my mom buys it every week. I know where it comes from, right? Okay, the world is wondrous. The world is wondrous when we are, but, but I have a great book for you to read. It's called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Uh, one of my best friends, it's one of his favorite books, Josh Nicholas, but in it, this guy highlights in our reductionist culture, um, and he's not saying this is bad in his own rights, but he says a negative consequence to our reductionist world is we see a lightning strike, and in our Western mindset, we think, well, that's uh, the force of gravity well uh, on the clouds, you know, going against uh, hypercharged, you know, particles in the sky that are just, you know, blah, blah, and we walk away. Okay, yes, that's true, but we've never stepped back to say, look how powerful the forces of creation are. How amazing our creator must be. We, we cease to be filled with wonder in our lives because we've lost that. Like, we should be filled with a sense of wonder because when kids are filled with wonder, they begin to emulate things that they're uh, in awe of. And so they begin to emulate... Um, you know, different people. They're inspired by the view of, of how life could be. So they, they watch, you know, we're in March Madness right now, right? And, and little boys like or little girls are like watching these games like, I want to be like that person. I want to be like that person. So they're like watching the, you know, the shots and the dribbles and the trick, you know, moves that they're doing. Like, whoa. Like, and, and they're inspired. They don't think they, you know, no... 10-year-old thinks, I can be like that today, but there's this desire to like, oh, maybe some of them are, but, but they're inspired to, to, to try to do some of it, to, to kind of emulate after it, right? So they go on the playground, and they try, you know, they try the three points, and they're like, wow, that's really hard, you know, and they try again, but, but they're emulating. Are we emulating? Are we inspired? One of one author, I can't remember who it was, but one author says there's a difference between the philosopher and the poet. Yeah. And we often think the philosopher is the rational one, and the poet is kind of you know got his head in the clouds. And maybe in many contexts that's true, but in the when it comes to faith, it's reversed. The poet is the one who's rational because the philosopher is constantly trying to get heaven into his mind, and his mind splits at the immensity of it. 
The poet simply is trying to get his mind into heaven and is all of its beauty and wonder. And when we come to this place, are we playing, are we inspired, are we in wonder of God, of his kingdom, of people before us who we should emulate and you know, heroes of our faith? If you're not inspired by your faith, that's on you because God is wondrous and he is worthy of being inspired by it. If you're not, it's not his fault, right? So, um, so read, you know, read good books. And maybe, I hate to even say it this way, but maybe don't start with reading like Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer. You know, if you're not inspired, like definitely, I would never want to say anything not to, to read that book. But, but maybe start with his biography. Read his story. Read about the great yeah, men and women right. of faith and be like, how could I be a little bit like that? How could I play with that idea of faith, of significance, of a life that actually is full of the receptivity of God's pursuit in their life? All right. Two, practice. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Mm-hmm. And we just got done with this series, right, on the spiritual disciplines. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But needless to say, we need to be people who are constantly practicing. That kid who's, like, full of wonder and awe and is, like, you know, playing around with the trick shots on the playground, you know, at some point he's like, I want to get better at that. And so he's going to start being disciplined and trying to strive after that and starting to practice that. And it's not a works-based faith. I'm not propagating that idea. We are saved by grace alone. But we recognize to live in the reality of our new humanity means that we need to become disciplined in changing how we go about our life. And it's about how do we receive it? How do we take hold of it? And we need to be people who practice that. Luke 10, 27 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are we being true? Are we acting out our faith? Are we acting out? Is it true? Is our faith true in our minds? Is it true in our hearts? Is it true in the way that we act? These things feed upon each other. Sometimes like, I don't feel it. That's okay. Act it. And it'll feed the feeling. The feeling will feed the action. It's like this, you know, this virtuous cycle is what they call them. Things that start to play off of each other. But is it true spiritually? And are we abiding in the presence of God? Which leads me to that concept of purpose. There's these old ODGs, these old uh, French, uh, I think they were French, they were uh, monks, Franciscan monks. Uh, These are like the ODGs of the ODGs. There's a lot of O's on that DG. So these are like old, old DGs. And and they, they wrote this Christian classic uh, where they basically said, we often find in our life that there are kind of four phases of love in our faith. The first one is this. We love ourselves because of what we get out of it. And we're kind of born that way. There's actually you know, survival instinct that's in there. It's like, okay, this is good for me, so I'm going to keep doing it. I keep serving myself because I'm needing to try to survive. Like, I love myself for my sake. It's not bad by itself, per se. It is very self-focused. But they said you kind of grow up and you find God. And you see all that God has, like you are drawing closer to the source of your existence, and you find that you are drawing closer to life itself as you draw closer. And all of that means, and so you find that you love him for your sake. You get a lot out of it. And again, it's not that it's bad, but it's very immature. It's very self-focused. But you love yourself for your sake. You love, he, 
You love God for your sake. But then you start to love him and you start to find how amazing he is. And if you understand the concept of his intrinsic worth and his intrinsic value, you start to be in awe of the reality that God, whether or not I get anything out of this, is worthy of my worship. And all of a sudden you begin to fall in love with God for his sake. And then as you grow in that place of recognizing and living out that love, you suddenly start to look around the world and you start looking at the world through his eyes. And you start to see that you fall in love with everything around you and through his eyes. And ultimately, you turn your eyes back on yourself and you find, I'm loving myself, but now it's for his sake. Now I love myself for his sake. Not for what myself, not for only self-edification or self-engrandment, but simply because he loves me so much, I love myself through that. And that's a far grander love. But... You know, when the, when the old creed says, you know, what is the purpose of man to love, to enjoy God forever, to glorify God and enjoy him forever? I think they had something going on there. But the idea of love, you know, we use that word love pretty all over the place. You know, we use it as like a statement of I, I love ice cream. I was hanging out with, we were listening to Dick Both this morning, and he kind of made that comment, you know, it's, it's like an accordion word. You know, you kind of like, I love ice cream and I love you. You know, it's like kind of, but at its at its root, at its core, uh, love is a relational word. At its ethos, love is a relational word. And so when we say, how do I love God? How do I love this world? It is it is a relational concept. And so as we learn to abide in God's presence, we are expressing love to Him. And that's just one concept. I want to kind of get that we need to be people who are growing in that purpose of abiding in our relationship with God. That the purpose of all of this is relationship with God. And if that's the purpose, then, you know, Lindsay and I, you know, one of her love languages is quality time, right? And sometimes it's not even quality, it's just time. Like, I could be doing something else sometimes, but if she's in the space, it's, it's you know, it's something. And so we, we find that it's just worth it because when she's there, it colors what I'm doing. Just by the fact that she's there. But the fact that I know that she's with me, you know, I'll turn to her sometimes, like, hey, what do you think about this? I wouldn't call her if she wasn't there, but because she's with me, I'm just constantly in the mindset of my spouse being in my presence with me. I may not be consciously even thinking about her, by any, you know, I'm thinking about whatever, but but there's this abiding presence. Tozer again, in that same book, awesome book. If you've never read it, it's a good place. It's a good book to read called The Pursuit of God, but. He says, believing then in directing the heart's attention to Jesus, it is lifting the mind to behold the Lamb of God and never ceasing that beholding for the rest of our lives. At first, this may be difficult, but it becomes easier as we look steadily at his wondrous person. Quietly and without strain, distractions may hinder, but once the heart is committed to him, after each brief excursion away from him, the attention will return again and rest upon him like a wandering bird coming back to its window. I would empathize, emphasize this one committal, this one great vol, uh, volitional, thank you. I swear I'm not getting old, but maybe I need glasses. Okay, act which establishes the heart's intention to gaze forever upon Jesus. God takes this intention for our choice and makes what allowances he must for the thousand distractions with we set us in this evil world. He knows that we have set the direction of our hearts toward Jesus, and we can know it too, and comfort ourselves with the knowledge that a habit of 
of soul is forming, which will become, after a while, a sort of spiritual reflex, requiring no more conscious efforts on our part. Pursuit of God. Kind of talking about that purpose of abiding through practice, right? It does take, sometimes it's not natural at first, but there's this place that we come to. Man, let me tell you, it is an amazing place when we come to that, where we just are in his presence, constantly acknowledging and aware of his abiding presence. And how that changes and colors everything that we do. And how it affects that relationship by acknowledging and recognizing it. Are we living in that purpose? If we are, there is this incredible passion that comes because everything is colored through that lens and through our eyes. Okay, real quick here. But what um, what does it take to live out a life of passion? Now, a couple things. Our ba- one of the books that we're using is kind of like a, a basis of, of this series is Winky Pratney's book, uh, Revival Fire, uh, Youth of Flame. Um, and he's kind of talking about revival uh, through it. But Youth of Flame, uh, we're, actually, we're going to have a few of the books, I think, here in the next week or so if you want to buy yeah. one. Um, but, but I'm using some of this from him here where he basically says a couple of things that we need is, one, we must be clean. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, he makes this comment, holiness, which is this very Christian word we use, but it's essentially to say in, in right standing, um, is he says it this way, holiness is simply obeying light you have from a right intention of heart. Um, is our intention right? And we we need to be people who are, who are holy, who are living out a holy life. Can we live in grace? Absolutely. But that is not the point. That's not the goal. That's not what our motivation is. You know, Winky also says that, that the laws of God are not motivations. They are, they are um, descriptions, descriptions. Thank you, Brent. I knew Brent would. I was waiting. Actually, I was, I was literally in my head. I like, I love my brother here. I know him. I was like, he'll get it. So, <laughs> descriptions of reality. Um, but, and what does he mean by that? Not motivations, but descriptions. I was watching this movie last night. Any of you guys seen that movie? Where the guy climbs like free solos the the Yosemite mountain. I'm like, this is this is what's that? Free solo? Yeah, is that what it's called? Okay. Anyway, free soloing? Yeah. Okay. But uh, I kind of thought I was inspired and a little appalled at the same time. I'm like, um. But, but here's the thing. Gravity is not a motivation. Gravity is not a motivation. It is a description of reality. This is how the world works. Right. Now, out of that description of reality, there comes motivation. right? This guy is free soloing the biggest cliff, apparently the biggest crack that is maybe possible on planet Earth. Um, and he... <laughs> Basically, he doesn't have any ropes, right? One mistake, and he's dead. Literally, he's you know thousands of feet above the earth, and just crazy. And and that's a motivation to you know get right, to get his moves right, to get strong, to get you know experience. And the, you know there's motivation there. One false move, and you're dead. You know we live in grace. We get a lot more false moves than that. But at the same time, there is this idea that that sin really sucks when it comes to relationships. Because the idea of the law of God is the description of reality. This is how the nature and the heart of God is. And sin is simply 
hurting that love relationship. Yeah. It's it's a it's a it's an act of affronting that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And so we need to be clean because our goal, our purpose, is to have relationship with God, and we don't want anything to get in the way that hurts Him, because our goal is Him. We must be unchoked. Um, is what you are doing worth Christ dying for? It's not talking about morally good or bad things, but it is talking about things that are like, are you wasting your time? You know, he would say that maybe the greatest sin of our generation is wasted time. So are we, what are we spending our time doing? Is it loving, glorifying, edifying to him? We might be Christ-dependent. Yeah. When I was coming back from Russia, the first year that we were there, I, I was, man, I was just... It was an amazing experience, but we were coming home for Christmas break, and I was just exhausted. I mean, it was amazing, but I was like, it's like an athlete, you know, at the end of the game. It's like, wow, it was awesome, but I'm like so drained, like, you know, mentally, because it took so much for us to make this work. It was so new. Nobody had done this quite this way, and we were trying to figure it all out and do it. You know, spiritually, it's a dark place. Emotionally, just the culture shock and all these different things that we were working through. You know, I was exhausted, and there was just moments that I was waiting for. It was basically in the Moscow airport when I could get on the international flight home. That was the moment where I was just like, I'm going to check out because I could I could basically like take off for Christmas break and, and, you know, I'm done. And when I was in line there, I saw this guy with a cowboy hat on in line for this international flight. And I remember I'm like, okay, clearly an American, right? So I go up to him and I'm like, hey, what's going on? I haven't talked to anybody in English for, that I don't know for like, you know, three or four months. So like, hey, what's your name? And, and he's like, yeah, he told me his name. He's like... I was like, what are you doing here? He's like, well, I work for a ranch outside of Moscow. I'm helping these guys like develop, uh, catch up uh, their their egg department in the country. is just kind of high, so to speak. So, so he, he said, I was like, oh, that's cool. He's kind of a young guy. I was like, where are you from? He's like, Colorado. I'm like, you're no kidding. I'm going to Colorado. I'm from Colorado. He's like, yeah, I went to CSU. Um, I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I graduated here like two years ago. And, and I'm like, what? I'm like, well, that's so cool. I actually minister at CSU, blah, 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 blah. I like, had this great little conversation for two minutes while we're getting ready to, like, you know, you know, group four, please come, you know, blah, blah. So we get on a plane. I'm like, hey, have a nice life. Good luck. Have, you know, good luck. And, and you know, two or three hundred people, whatever they put on those international flights, you know, it's not small. And who sits next to me? <laughs> I mean, let me tell you, I was exhausted. I'm like, God, I can't. I can't do anything else. I, what is going on? And, and I had this conversation. And this guy was like at a place where he's wrestling with spiritual questions and questions about God. And I'm like, God, this was my break. What are you doing to me? Like, and I, I have these moments where God is like, am I your peace? Am I your rest? And sometimes I realize, no. But you need to be. Because I need to share your love with this guy. And I have nothing to give. So we need to be Christ-dependent. And lastly here, we need to be community. The interesting thing about uh, the Zealots were one of the groups that they hated the most actually weren't even the invaders, the Romans, but they hated uh, Jews that they saw as as defectors that had uh, sold out to the Romans. And uh, there's indication that they actually would make an oath that they would kill a Jew defector if they ever had the chance. Um, Interestingly, uh, Simon the Zealot was one disciple, and Matthew was another. 
Matthew, the tax collector, yeah. who was seen as the epitome of the defectors. And Simon never killed him. You know, that sounds so macabre, but at the same time, it's, it's profound. Yeah. He was supposed to kill him, yeah. and he didn't. Not only that, but when the, in Acts, when the disciples all scattered, they stay together. The disciples said, Simon and Matthew stay together. Even when Jesus is gone, even when everyone else is leaving, they stay together. Why? Because they found they needed each other. But they needed each other because, you know, probably the single biggest indication of whether or not you are going to live out a life of passion for the Lord is are you in community with people that are doing likewise? You know, I have a friend who uses the analogy like, hey, can you take a fire, the hot coals, they're, they might, you know, they get hotter almost. They're just like they're saturated with the fire. But what happens when you take one of those coals and throw it out into the fire? It dies. It just, you know, pretty quick, it just cools off. And we're kind of like that. In community, we feed each other. Not, not surface-level friendships. Dick Both had this whole talk this morning. I, was, I just love it. You know, he was talking about, if you want to look for, in the 50s, they had this group that was looking at, like, what causes happiness? And they kind of thought, well, it's, it's got to be you know, outside of Boston. They were kind of doing a survey, I think. And they thought, well, money and success and power, you know, the common indicators. And they've done a study actually recently with young people like you, and the you know, same kind of thing, you know, achievements and power and money, that, that's what, what does it. And uh, they've done this long study uh, that basically has come back, maybe the longest study in history for uh, psychology, uh, come back is one answer, relationships. That's it. That's what's going to indicate whether you're happy. Uh, yeah. Deep, meaningful, significant, powerful. And in your faith, it's true too. In fact, I, I can tell that just anecdotally from my looking at my alumni like the ones who are passionate about jesus loving life are the ones who are doing it together Amen. if they can't do it together they're finding community where they can create that but but it's a lot easier when they they walk out together and doing it so let's let's be a community who are on fire for jesus and on fire pursuing after a god who's pursuing after us responsive receptive to this god and who responds in like. So what I'm going to have you guys do is just for a couple minutes here, I want you to break up. If you have a small group together here tonight, get together. If you just have some, if you don't, if you're just kind of on your own, go find some friends or get a resource leader with you. But just I want real quick, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. We're going to go back into worship here in just a minute. But just for a minute, I want you to get together. Even if it's one-on-one, that's great. But I want you to get together. Small group leaders, you can leave this. But I want you to ask a question. How can we pray for you? How can we minister to you as community? How can we serve you in this moment? And maybe you're saying, hey, I, I believe this is true, but I don't, it doesn't matter in my life, but I want it to. Or maybe it matters, but I don't think it's true. Or maybe you're somewhere on that journey of the, that passion, like, hey, I'm just kind of playing with God. Like, whatever it is, I want you to say, how can we pray for you? We're going to do this real quick. Just um, one person, pray for that person for like a minute and then move on. But I want you guys to take a moment to be able to minister to one another. And we can talk about community all day long. We can talk about, you know, being people who are passionate. To be community means that we need to be real, authentic, and vulnerable with one another. And let's let's do that. Let's model what we talk about. And so just for a minute, let's just do that. I know you guys do this probably in your weekly meeting or one-on-one time or whatever, but let's spend some time in our corporate setting and we're going to go back into some worship here at the end. So go ahead and break out.